Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Psalms. Not every summer, but most summers we take a break from other things and we go pick various Psalms and, uh, and look at those through our summer messages. And that's what we're going to do this year. Today we're going to be in Psalm 22, so I encourage you to turn there. This weekend, most people kind of regard it as the official beginning of summer. It's a holiday weekend, and so I thought I'd do something a little unusual, a little different this morning. Today we're going to have a short sermon, but before you get too excited, I'm not going to let you out early because I just can't do that. So I'm going to do a short sermon with a long story attached to it, a brief exegesis of the text and a long illustration. But I think you'll like it. I think you'll be encouraged. So let's dig in. You might recall Psalm 22, if you've been around, if you're around this spring, earlier this year we looked at the last words of Jesus Christ on the cross, the seven sayings of Christ from the cross. If you were here for that series, you might recall that we often came back to Psalm 22. It's one of several passages in the Old Testament that give us a clear picture of the cross. Psalm 22, if you read it, you'll feel like you're at the cross watching the crucifixion of Christ. It is vivid detail written a thousand years before Christ by King David. But we're looking at the end of this psalm today because the last verses of Psalm 22 give us insight into the results of Christ's death on the cross. What did His death on the cross bring about? What did it procure? So follow along as I read, beginning in verse 27 to the end of the psalm. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve Him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. The result of Jesus' death on the cross is that people will turn to the Lord and be saved. That is the key point of this section. Because Jesus suffered on the cross, people are going to remember and turn to the Lord and they will be saved. But four things of this salvation that I want us to see just very quickly this morning. First, note that this text tells us that people from everywhere and every people group will turn to God and find righteousness in Him. Verse 27, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before Him. The Gospel is good news to all people. Actually, that was said by the angels at the birth of Christ. It would be good news for all the people, every race, every language, every tribe. I notice next that people from every class, people from every station in life, people from every status 
will turn to God and worship Him. You see it in verse 29. It says, all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. But it's not just only the rich. It's also all who go down to the dust will kneel before Him. Those who go down to the dust means the humble, the lowly, the those who are poor, those who are unnoticed. They, all, they won't be left out. And He even goes and says, those who cannot keep themselves alive that means the dying, the sick, the elderly, the weak, the oppressed, the, the lowest of the low, those who are just knocking on death's door. Jesus is, the Gospel of Jesus is good news for all classes of people, not just all races of people. The third thing that I noticed, verse 31, it says, He has done it. And the point here is that God does it all. It is God who has provided salvation for people through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And by the way, if you're here this morning, you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Understand this, you're a sinner. God loves you so much. He sent His Son. His Son died on the cross to pay for your sin. And God offers you forgiveness and eternal life simply by believing, by trusting in Jesus Christ. It's God who has done it all. Nothing we earn. But it's also God who in His sovereignty brings about the salvation of all these people. We see it up in verse 28. For dominion belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. God is sovereign. He brings all this about. But God does this. The fourth thing we see is God does this. He accomplishes it. He works through people. Verses 30 to 31. God is going to bring people not only in the past, but people in the future generations. He's going to bring people to Him from every tribe, nation, and every class. and every. Uh, but He's doing this, it says, through the work of people who proclaim, people who tell others this good news. It says future generations will be told. Who's going to tell them? Verse 31, they will proclaim His righteousness to a people unborn. Who is the they? Well, it doesn't say. But somebody's going to do the telling. We know the answer from the rest of the Scripture. Who's supposed to do it? Apparently we don't know. Um, who's supposed to do it? We are. Yeah. Us. Glad to see some of you are awake now. That's good. <laughs> the work of bringing people to God is going to be done through people. God does it, but He does it through us. Now, the culmination of this, Psalms tells us that the death of Christ is going to accomplish this. It's going to happen. We get to the end of the Scripture, to the book of Revelation. We see the culmination. It is finished. Revelation gives several glimpses of heaven. One of them we see in Revelation chapter 7. As the scene unfolds, we read this in Revelation 7, 9. After this, John is writing... I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Before the throne of God and before the Lamb. That's Jesus Christ. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This morning, what I want to do, that's what Psalms 22 tells us is going to happen. 
What I want to do is tell us a story in the rest of our time this morning, a little glimpse back into history to see just one little glimmer and one little place of how God brings this about. And I think you'll find it interesting and encouraging. I also think that this is what we will be hearing throughout the eternity as we are in heaven. We will be hearing the rehearsals of myriads of stories like this. And we will marvel at the grace and the goodness and the incredibly complex plan of God. As Scripture says, how unsearchable are His ways and His judgments past finding out. As that verse begins, who can understand the mind of God? He's working out a marvelous plan. So that's where it ends up in, in here in Revelation 7. It's told about in Psalm 22. Now let me tell you a story. I'm going to take you back about 200, actually a little over 200 years ago and take you to a place that most of us couldn't pick out on a map. If I asked you today, brought in a map and said, find the country of Burma, most of you couldn't for two reasons. You don't know where it is. And secondly, if you look at a map today, if it's a modern one, you won't find Burma listed because it has another name. Now it's Myanmar. You go, oh yeah, I know where that is. No, no you don't. That's okay. But I'll show you. <laughs> it's church. Don't lie. <laughs> no, some of you do, but most of us don't. Burma, Myanmar, is in Southeast Asia. It's about the size of Texas, which makes it dear to my heart, being a Texan. Borders part of India, Bangladesh. On the, on the west, China to the north, to the east, Thailand. In the early 18th century, the late 1700s, in other words, it was home to, even then, to several million people. It was then today, then as it is today, a predominantly and very tenaciously Buddhist country. Buddhist temples and Buddhist shrines dominate the landscape in Burma. The majority population in Burma is still today as it was then the Bamar or the Burmese people as they are also called. The minority, and they make up about 68% of the population in Burma, the minority of the country is a myriad of various ethnic people groups. Actually, they say over a hundred people groups make up that other 32 or so percent of the population. Many of them are quite small. One of the larger people groups today, as well as in that time, was a group called the Karen. They numbered some 600 to 800,000 people back in the late 1700s. The Karen were a poor and a lowly people. They were scattered throughout Burma, mostly up in the, in the hills, out of, in the mountains, in the very rustic, rough places. For the most part, they weren't there by choice. They were there out of survival because the Karen people were a, a lowly people, a despised people. They were, in their own description, the lowest of the low. The Burmese majority 
in Burma, along with over in Thailand, the Siamese majority there, and the, many of the Karen were kind of sandwiched in the middle in the mountains. And, and on, in both places, they were severely oppressed by the majority, uh, by those people groups. Being oppressed means that they were, the, their villages were often raided. Their men were enslaved and carried off. Their women were forced into prostitution. And uh, the people just lived menial existence. And the governments turned a blind eye to all of these abuses. And so the Karen people survived by living in the places they were pretty much nowhere, no one else wanted to live. They would venture into the populated areas, into the valleys and into the cities only to sell products and to sell goods that they had, that came from the mountains and they would do that to whomever they could, but mostly they tried to remain invisible. There was safety in invisibility, you see. And so that they wouldn't be abused or kidnapped or enslaved. One of the reasons that the Karen people were so despised by the Burmese and by other people groups was because the Karen people refused to become Buddhists. They also refused to engage in the worship of idols. Instead, they clung tenaciously to their tribal folk religion and their folk traditions. Really, until... We're talking about right now the late 1700s. It wasn't really until the into the 1800s that these traditions really came to be understood by many folks on the outside. But what we know is that the Karen traditions, Karen traditions told how their ancestors had once served the one true almighty God. His name was Yuah. And you all loved them, but their ancestors were deceived by Mukali. Mukali enticed them into disobeying Yua. And having followed Mukali away from Yua, now there was sickness, now there was death. And now they were bound to Mukali. To survive, they must follow his instructions and they must offer sacrifices to the, the gnats the spirits who served Mukali. And yet, in a majority of the Karen villages, there were special teachers called Bukos. The Bukos would continually remind the people that the ways of the Nats were not the ways of Yuah. They were not the ways of the true God. And that one day, the Karen people must fully return to the ways of Yahweh. But for now, no one knew how to do that. At one time they had possessed Yahweh's words, but their ancestors had lost them. But the Bukos also taught, one day a white foreigner will arrive with Yahweh's book. And they will teach us how to return to Yuah. And so for countless centuries, the Karen had waited. They had resisted Buddhism. They had resisted worshiping idols. But they served evil spirits bound 
in their minds to Spiritism and Mu Kali, waiting for someone to tell them how to return to Yua. A world away from Burma, a young man named William Carey grew up in the middle of rural England. As a boy, he apprenticed as a cobbler, that's a, a shoemaker, working in the shoemaker shop. Also as a young boy, he was converted. He, he became a believer in Jesus Christ, gave his, his heart and his life to Jesus. And though he had very little education, he read while he made shoes. He got his hands on a Greek grammar book and he taught himself Greek. And he became a student of the Scriptures. Then as a young man, William became the pastor of a small church, still supporting himself as a cobbler. And as he worked making shoes, he taught himself Hebrew. He taught himself Latin. He read and he studied. And through his studies and his his studies of Scripture, young William Carey became more and more convinced that Jesus' great commission, Matthew 28-19, go into all the world and make disciples, he became convinced that that didn't just apply to the disciples, those twelve disciples there that Jesus was talking with, but rather they applied to all Christians of all ages. And so one day William proposed this thought at a gathering of pastors, but he was abruptly interrupted and rebuked by an older minister who said, Young man, you are an enthusiast. Sit down. When God wants to convert the heathen, He will do it without consulting you or me. Undeterred, William penned a short book with a very long title. It was called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. A catchy title. <laughs> One I'm sure you would pick up if you saw it on the newsstand. But in that little book, he wrote, Multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. His little book began to impact other people. William Carey, known today as the father of modern missions, in 1792 he organized a missionary society to send missionaries out into the world. And a year later, he and his family left England as missionary pioneers to take the Gospel of Jesus Christ to India. Two years later, 1795, an Englishman approached a Karen village along with a Burmese guide. As they drew near, like moths to a light, Karen people came out of the village and out from the forests and down from the hills and they surrounded the Englishman. They greeted him with big smiles and people clamored to try to touch his white face and his white arms, having never seen a white man before. One Karen man who could speak Burmese began to talk excitedly with the Burmese guide and 
He listened and listened and for a while, for a while, and then finally the Burmese guide turned and spoke to the Englishman and he said, well, this is interesting. He said, these tribal people think that you might be a certain white brother whom they've been expecting from time immemorial. He's supposed to bring them a book just like one that apparently their forefathers lost long ago. The author of this book, they say, is Yuah, the Supreme God. And he said, these people are asking with bated breath, hasn't he brought it? Hasn't he brought it? The Englishman, who actually was a diplomat from the newly established British embassy in Rangoon, Burma, he paused for a moment and he said, tell them they are mistaken. I know nothing of this God called you are, nor the slightest idea whom this white brother might be. And with that, they strode off and disappeared into the jungle as several hundred very disappointed Karen watched. One of the young Karen men said, could it be that our forefathers were mistaken? They were wrong. And one elderly Karen man said with a hopeful smile, No. Don't worry. One day He will come. About a decade later, again, halfway around the world, this time in Williamstown, Massachusetts. The year was 1806. A young man named Samuel Mills, along with four of his college friends, from all from Williams College, they had begun gathering twice a week to pray. On this day, it was a warm August afternoon, they met in a meadow. And before prayer, they had planned to discuss William Carey's book, An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. I told you it was a catchy title. These guys couldn't wait to talk about what it it's what it meant and what its implications were. As they were meeting, there was a sudden and very intense thunderstorm that, that forced the five young men to seek some shelter, which they found under a large haystack that was resting on a wooden frame. There under the hay, protected by the wind, or protected from the wind and from the, the rain and the lightning that stormed and swirled and roared all around them, they resumed their discussion and had their prayer meeting. But before they were done, they were deeply affected, deeply moved, and they each one committed their lives to God to serve Him wherever He needed them. They sang a hymn together and Samuel Mills con concluded their time together with these words. He says, we can do this if we will. That haystack prayer meeting changed those students forever. And by the way, that haystack has been called the birthplace of American foreign missions. That haystack meeting literally changed the world. Just two years later, 1808, a 20-year-old man named Adoniram Judson 
had just become a believer in Jesus Christ. Because he had a strong desire to serve God, but didn't know yet how he could do that, he enrolled in Andover Seminary. There in Andover Seminary, Adoniram Judson became acquainted with Samuel Mills and another one of those young men who were in the haystack over at Williamstown. They had come and enrolled it at um, Andover Seminary to get more training to serve the Lord as well. Adoniram soon joined into their passion for mission. And together, as students, Adoniram and Samuel joined together and they, were, they instigated the creation of the very first agency in America that was created to send missionaries to a foreign land. It's called the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. Two years later, February of 1812, a newly married Adoniram and Nancy Judson along with two other couples and with two single men, they boarded ships headed to India to be missionaries. They traveled on two different ships because ship travel was not necessarily safe in those days. They said if one goes down, there will still be folks to carry on the mission. They also understood in those days, mission work meant generally you never come back. It was a one-way trip. They arrived about six months later in Calcutta, India on June 17, 1812 and there they were welcomed by William Carey, the cobbler from England, became missionary. When they arrived in India, there happened to be a war going on between America and Britain, conveniently called the War of 1812. And the British East India Company, which controlled India, refused to let these American missionaries stay permanently in India. And so disappointed, these young missionaries had to look for alternative destinations for their missionary work. Despite warnings of how difficult living and evangelizing in Burma would be, Adoniram and Nancy Judson decided to go to Burma. Finally, 18 months after they left home in the United States, the Judsons finally arrived on the mission field, landing in Rangoon, Burma, July 13th of 1813. Rangoon was a very difficult place to live. It was a dirty, run-down city. It was crowded. It was miserable, smelly. The temperatures often were above 108 degrees. At night, they say the dogs and pigs fought over garbage in the streets. Cholera, malaria, and dysentery were rampant. But the Judsons chose to pour themselves into the work with abandon and with joy. They learned the Burmese language. They focused on reaching these Burmese Buddhist people. Adoniram built a zayat, basically a building without sidewalls. We would call it today a pavilion. He built it right next to one of the most traveled, one of the busiest pathways, roadways going in and out of Rangoon because that roadway took people straight to the very famous 
Shui Dagon Pagoda Buddhist temple. And so day by day, every day, Adoniram sat there in that Zayat next to the busy road. And there he sat fine-tuning his Burmese and he was busy translating the Scriptures into the Burmese language. And then whenever someone would stop or whenever he could engage someone in conversation on the road, he would take time to visit and to ultimately share with them as much as he could of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. However, even as they had been told, reaching the Burmese with the Gospel was indeed difficult. It was six long years before they saw their first Burman person declare their faith in Jesus Christ. In time, the Judsons did see many fruits of their labors, but it came at great cost. There were many battles with great illness that nearly killed them many times. Three children had been born. None of them survived very long. Nancy and Adoniram suffered immensely when Adoniram was imprisoned and tortured for almost two years when Burma and England went to war. Eventually, Nancy died of smallpox in 1826, 13 years after they had come to Burma. In these 13 years of struggle to reach the Buddhist Burmese with the Gospel, and with small results, little did they know, little did they understand that almost every day they were there, Karen people passed by and walked by desperately hungering for the very message that they had. In 1827, a year after Nancy died, Adoniram purchased a debt slave who was owned by one of the, his very recent Christian converts. And he, he paid the man's debt to set him free, to, and, and now he owned him, but he purchased him in order to set him free so that he could hopefully as well get him employed in some better work and with freedom. This man's name was Kothabu. Kothabu was about 50 years old. He was a rough, surly man with a fierce, the memoirs say, a diabolical temper. He had lived a very rough life as a thief and ultimately as a slave. But he had admitted to being a murderer as well, though he couldn't remember exactly how many people he would killed. but It was over 30. Adoniram, anyway, set him free, found employment for him, took him into his home. And he began to teach him to read, give him education, and of course, to teach him about Jesus Christ. At first, Kothabu seemed too dense to grasp any of the message that they shared, especially as he tried to teach him about Jesus Christ. But but little by little things began to change and soon he began to ask questions about the message that these white strangers brought 
and especially about the book that contained this message. And suddenly, like rain hitting parched ground, Kofabu welcomed the message and he became a believer in Jesus. And I neglected to tell you that Kofabu is Karen. One of the Karen people. He poured himself into learning and to study because he realized that he was among the very first of his people to ever hear that the book has come. The message about how to return to God has come. And he needed to prepare himself to go tell others that the good news has arrived. It was a year later that some other missionaries came and they planned to, to help out with the work in, in Burma. And one of these couples planned to head down south in Burma to a city called Tavoy. When Kofabu heard where they were going, he said, take me with you. Down near Tavoy, there was a large Karen population. As soon as they arrived, Kofabu ran out and disappeared into the, into the countryside. Soon, Karen people began to emerge in droves. As the days and weeks went on, hundreds upon hundreds of Karen people coming to the missionaries saying, we want to learn more about the words of Yahweh. For his part, Kothabu forged on through the forest, fearless regardless of the dangers of tigers and snakes and disease, seeking out Karen villages wherever they could be found. He was undeterred by rivers and storms and bandits. Those who knew him said he went out like a, like a brush fire, tirelessly, relentlessly moving from place to place to share the good news. When most all the tribes the Karen tribes and villages in the area of Tavoy had heard the news. Kothabu decided it was time to move and he headed up into central Burma there to seek out more Karen villages. And so he did until he died in 1840, 12 years after he became a believer in Jesus. He literally wore himself out traveling around sharing the good news of Jesus. But the Karen response to the, the Gospel continued to grow and grow. Soon there were, in just a few years, there were tens of thousands of Karen believers. And they had organized themselves going out to reach, to find and reach more Karen villages and more Karen people. But not only had they done that, they, they realized that they had an obligation to reach beyond their people and they began to organize teams of Karens who would go to reach out to other tribes of minority peoples to carry the good news of Jesus to them. Within a few decades, there were literally hundreds of thousands of believers in Jesus Christ among the Karen and other minority tribes in Burma and even into southern China and into western Thailand and other places. You see, when you and I get to heaven, among those that vast sea of humanity with people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, you and I will discover hundreds of thousands of Karen people. They are there because God prepared a people and then He took a shoemaker and used His conviction and His example to challenge and call people to Jesus' mission 
which lit a flame of passion and prayer in some students, which ignited a movement of missions, which sent out a preacher who faithfully suffered and labored and who ultimately reached a murderer who became, as the Cadden nicknamed him, the Apostle to the Cadden's. And brought them the message that they had longed to hear for so very, very long. Jesus came to pay the debt of sin, Psalms 22 tells us, so the people might remember and return to the God whom they had rejected and forgotten. God desires to redeem people from every tribe and nation and tongue, people from every class and station, people from every generation. And God does it all, but He chooses to accomplish it through people as His mouthpiece, as His witnesses. That's why we send out folks to places like the Dunes and Paradise Island. So we partner with missionaries all over the world. But it's also the work that we are to do here. As 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, that we are His mouthpieces, God's mouthpiece, God making His appeal through us be reconciled to God. God still works today through ordinary people who respond to His call to be His witnesses even as He did 200 years ago. My prayer is that you and I and our church here at the Chapel of the Lake that we will be encouraged in this mission and that we will be faithful to do whatever He calls us to do. To pray faithfully. To give liberally. To go willingly. And to share boldly. Father, thank You for this word of encouragement, this bit of this glimpse of what You've done which reminds us that there's, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more that You have done in order to bring each one of us to You. There's a, there was a, a story. Much that we will not even know until we get to heaven. Father, I pray that as we've heard these things that we will be reminded we have a mission, we have a role to play, that we will be faithful in it. Because, Father, we desire to see, even as You say, that all men come to repentance. So, Father, may we, may that be our prayer. May that be our passion. May that be our ambition. For the glory of Jesus. In His name we ask.